0: His name, amen. amen. Good morning, all. Ooh, that's loud. So uh, it's good to be with you, all this morning. And we're testing a new mic here this morning. But anyways, um, the title of my sermon today is the power of God's grace. Uh, I'd like to first of all share uh, an incident of some missionaries about seventy-five years ago, nineteen forty-nine. The river ran wide and deep. No bridge could be seen, but pastors Edgar Henneke and Arthur Wacker needed to cross. What's more, they needed to get their vehicle, which was their home on wheels, across as well. They were directed to a ferry, but the ferry manager pointed to their vehicle and said, it won't work. It will tip over. Now what? How were Henneke and Wacker to continue their work of finding a place for their church to start African mission work? would they be able to cross the orange river in south africa after the ferry owner and manager talked it over they agreed to give it a try on two conditions first everything would have to be up, unloaded from the vehicle the bastard five men began digging in the water on the opposite side The pastors felt sorry for them and gave them harmonicas, which spurred them on. By evening, they were ready to try. The ferry went okay with the heavy vehicle until they entered the main current, then all began to wobble. But the hard workers steadied it and made it to the other side. After they returned and brought the goods over, the pastors had to pay up for two ferry trips and the day labor of five men to dig a new channel. Total cost, $12. That's just one of the obstacles that Pastor Henneke and Wacker went through as they started in Cape Town, South Africa, and worked their way north looking for a suitable place for their church to do mission work. What got them through these obstacles? Their foresight, their ingenuity, their luck? Not at all. It was God's grace. God's grace kept them safe from the time they left their homes in Michigan in April 1949 until they returned about three months later. God's grace directed them over 4,000 miles that they drove in Africa. God's grace led them to northern Rhodesia, which is presently Zambia. Um, have we experienced God's grace as Pastor Haneke described it towards the last here? I haven't always understood it this way. Um, Maybe I'll just read that again. What got them through these obstacles? Their foresight, their ingenuity, their luck, not at all. It was God's grace. God's grace kept them safe from the time they left their houses in Michigan in April 1949 until they returned about three months later. God's grace directed them over the 4,000 miles they drove in Africa. God's grace led them to northern Rhodesia, which is present-day Zambia. So I'm hopeful by the end of, if you don't understand God's grace in that way, uh, that today we can learn more of how God's grace is in that way. And I've divided my sermon into five parts. Transforming grace, reciprocating grace, saving grace, teaching grace, and sustaining grace. transforming grace. Grace can have different meanings. We'll talk several different meanings here today, and perhaps the most common people think of is unmerited favor, and certainly it is that, but it is more than that. Today, I'd mostly like to talk about the influence of the Holy Spirit that works a change in a person from the inside out. That's the definition I'll be talking of mostly today, God's work in us through the Holy Spirit. That's grace. Let's take a look at uh, the first two meanings, I, I, uh, the first two definitions of favor and grace. And let's uh, turn to Luke chapter 2. There is the incident of Jesus as a little child. They brought him. Um, Luke chapter 2. I'm going to start in reading in verse 39 to the end. And when they had performed all these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. So they had performed, um, like, I think, naming of the child, circumcision, purification of the mother, different things. Verse 40. And the child grew. Uh, this is Jesus as a small child. Uh, I don't know how old he was here. Verse 40, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and, they, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said unto him, "'Son,' Why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spoke unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So we see here verses 40 and verse 52 are very close. Verse 40 says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And in verse 52, when Jesus was 12 years old, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Both of these verses have have the same Greek word hadas but they are translated differently, and appropriately so. It seems to me like the grace talking about in verse 40 is God's spirit, God in him. God was upon him, God doing a work in him. And yet, in verse 52, it says he found favor with God and man. Another definition of haras is that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, or charm, like as in a graceful skater. And Jesus was preaching in Nazareth, and they marveled at his graceful speech. In Luke 4, uh, Luke 4, verse 22. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And that is the same Greek word there that is mostly translated uh, uh, grace. Another definition I like from the Greek Interlinear uh, Dictionary is goodwill, loving kindness, favor of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. I like the progression here. First, God shows favor on us. We don't deserve his attention, but God shows us favor and kindness. Then God's grace does a work in us to save us. God's saving grace. And then we grow in our Christian life. He keeps on working on us, giving us strength to persevere, increases our faith and knowledge, changes our desires and affections. And lastly, when God's grace has its perfect work in us, it produces fruit. That is the power of God's transforming grace. To transform is to change, is to change condition, nature, or character. Metamorphosis is a good example of transformation from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Some examples in the scripture of God's transforming grace Ezekiel thirty six twenty six, A new heart also will I give you, and a spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. 2 Corinthians five seventeen, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The, ta- the change that takes place in me isn't because of who I am. It's not because of what I did. It's all because of God's grace at work in me. I think Philippians 2.13 sums up my definition of grace that I'd like to talk about today. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's grace. God working in us not only causes us to want to do good, but it also enables us and empowers us to do good. Many people um, stop at the first definition of grace, favor, God's favor on me, and they don't go on with God's grace still working in me. Any and all of God's work in me can be summed up in one word, grace. I have a new heart of flesh, old things are passed away, My sin nature has been transformed. Romans 6.14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. How? Why? For you're not under the law, but under grace. The power of grace in me is greater than the power of sin in me. My paraphrase of Romans 6.14 might be something like this. Sin will no longer dominate your life because you're no longer kept in bounds by law, but because you're under God's divine influence, God's grace at work in me. Back one chapter, Romans 5, verses 20 and 21 expound on this idea. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Just, so just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who am I that God should even be mindful of me? And he moves in and does this transforming work. My nature is but bent to do evil. Not only does God do an amazing work in us, he also puts us in right standing with the Father. Before we accepted Jesus in our heart, we knew we should do certain things, and maybe we did some things because of reprimand or laws or punishment. Now we have God's grace helping us to do the right thing and changing our desires. Praise the Lord. I like what the life application uh, commentary said about this passage here, Romans five twenty to 21. It said as a sinner separated from God you see this his law from below as a ladder to be climbed up to get to God perhaps you have repeatedly tried to climb it only to fall to the ground every time you've advanced one or two rungs or perhaps the sheer height of the ladder seems so overwhelming that you have never even started in either case What relief you should feel to see Jesus offering with open arms to lift you above the ladder of the law to take you directly to God. Once Jesus lifts you into God's presence, you are free to obey out of love, not necessity. And through God's power, not your own, you know that if you stumble, you will not fall back to the ground. Instead, you will be caught and held in Christ's loving arms. That's grace. Jesus lifting us up and putting us in right standing with the Father, empowering us to live righteous lives. And because of his transforming grace that we feel and see at work in us, we can't help but thank him and give him credit and praise. My next, uh, I'd like to talk about reciprocating grace. How many know, um, what direction does a reciprocating saw Blade, go. Back and forth. That's why I've titled. I don't know that this is uh, found in scripture, but that's why I named this reciprocating grace. Back and forth grace. Let me give you an example of giving a gift to a child. Not because it's his birthday. Just because you saw this nice thing at a store and you thought of this one child and you even wrapped it and you gave it to them just like, wow, they're surprised. They, they did nothing to earn it. They'd just been naughty that day. But you give them the, pri- the, the, the gift. They open it with delight. They're, you see their eyes light up, and they thank you. They come and hug you. That's grace. That's the grace I'm talking about. We don't deserve anything from God And we should reciprocate that grace to Him, thank Him, praise Him. That is another definition of haras, is thanks. In the New Testament, it is translated in a form of thanks 11 times, the word haras. Have you ever wondered what's in the meaning of, let's say grace before you eat? In a sense, it's let's say thanks, or more properly, it could be like let's thank God for the food before we eat. Let's say grace. An example of Hadas, translated grace, or thanks, is found in Romans 6, 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which has delivered you. In this verse, God is praised and accredited for his work of transformation. Grace is totally undeserved and unmerited. Nothing we did to earn it that he should even think on us. Can we comprehend what God did to us and in return thank him for it? Be grateful. Martin Luther said, if in his gifts and benefits God were more sparing and close-handed we would learn to be more thankful. The greater God's gifts and works, the less they are regarded. How true. Sad, but true. Another example of Hadas being translated "thank," can be found in 2 Corinthians nine. The believers had taken money up and given it to some poor people. And then in uh, 2 Corinthians nine, seven, it says, uh, God loves a cheerful giver. And breaking in at verse 12, "...for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through, the, through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for the liberal sharing with them and all men." And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We will never be able to fully comprehend or thank God for his indescribable gift. The word grace or haras is here translated two different ways. In verse 14, it's translated as grace. And in verse 15, it says thanks. And those are the same Greek word we've been talking about. People saw their fruit of sharing, and they properly recognized God and accredited God for his grace at work in them. And then they returned thanks to God for it. It seems like gratitude follows grace as thunder follows lightning. It's always after. That's how it should be. Reciprocating grace. The proof of our gratefulness and gratitude for God's grace is displayed in our life of obedience and service to him. I'd like to show you what I drew up as a reciprocating grace cycle. We have God above and man below. God reaches down. He saves us. He, his Holy Spirit works in us. That's grace. We, in return, should thank him. That's grace again. Another meaning of grace is thanks, with gratitude. This reciprocating grace cycle produces an intimate love relationship. It goes around and round, and God is honored, and it makes him very happy. 1 John 4, 9-10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We also need a proper perspective of God reaching down to me and showing love. Even while we were sinners, God reached down and saved me. My realization of what God did for me who am so undeserving, produces spontaneous praise and worship. God's grace is a reciprocating grace. As we inhale of his grace, we should then exhale of gratitude to God. I'd like to talk of his saving grace next. God's grace, God's work in me is so powerful that it can save even the worst of sinners and snatch them from the pits of hell, and the enemy's lies in his bondage. That's grace. That's saving grace. Psalm 40, verse 2, he brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. That's a saving grace, where I embrace God, I invite him in, I accept his promptings, and he transforms me. First part of verse 3, Psalm 40, verse 3. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. That's reciprocating grace, giving thanks to him, praising God for his transformation, his work of transformation, knowing who did the work. And the last part of verse 3 is the result. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord The fruit of others trusting in God is a byproduct of our reciprocating grace slash love relationship with God. I'd like if we could turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'd like to read 10 verses here. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of obedience of, of disobedience, among whom also we had all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I am utterly hopeless and helpless without God. I can't fix my sin problem. We, We live in an information age overload. Like... You can search on about anything on the internet to fix. I've done some mechanic work on my truck, and I'm no mechanic, but I searched for it, and I found the answer. We will never find a fix online that we can, on our own, be saved. Only Jesus can fix our sin problems. Only grace, only God reaching down and picking me up. Max Licato says... Grace is the voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. Next, I'd like to look at a passage in John chapter 6, verse 44 and 45. Um, Before I read this, remember, grace is the influence of the Holy Spirit that works a change in a person from the inside out. Think of that as we read this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, anyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. No one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. There's no exceptions. There's no shortcuts. There's no other way around. Only by God's grace God reaching down. And when I think of that, I think of Peter's profession, like when um, when Jesus, uh, people were saying, Jesus is this person, that person, and, and Jesus told his disciples, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered. In Matthew 16, it says, he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. God's grace, revealing himself to Peter. John sixteen thirteen says that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. The word of God is alive and sharp, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. We can read God's word, and if we are revealed his truth, a new truth, that is God speaking to us. We have just met with God. We have an interesting passage in Matthew 13 where not everybody is revealed his truth. Why not? Let's turn to Matthew 13 and read verses 10 to 17. Why is his truth hidden? Why did he speak in parables? They ask him here. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, because it is not given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it because it, let me start over, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables because they seeing see not and hearing they hear not neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah uh, uh, which saith by hearing ye shall hear and, and shall not understand and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing. And their eyes have they closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see these things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear these th- those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. But to them, it is not given to understand the mysteries of God. Verse 12 is a reciprocating grace where he keeps pouring in more because we're returning great, uh, gratitude and thanking him. And it even says there is an abundance. Verse 15 gives us insight into why God does not reveal himself to these people. These people have grown callous to God's promptings, God's grace, God's calling them and they have stopped their ears and closed their eyes to truth. Follow along with me in verse 15. Here's a short paraphrase of what I would say this means to me. There are hard-hearted people who have stopped their ears and closed their eyes for fear that they should understand and be converted. So it tells me they have known the truth. Everyone has opportunity for salvation. But if we don't receive God's grace, he will not force it on us. If God's saving grace isn't a reciprocating grace, it really is no grace at all. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks more of these same people that have rejected God. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 to 12. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And in every sort of evil, they de- they deceive those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them powerful delusions so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. For those who refuse God's saving grace, the Holy Spirit working in them, God sends them powerful delusions. God changes from drawing them through his grace to driving them away through deception and lies. Awful situation. And you've heard me say this before, I think that all starts with small daily choices every day. What will you choose today? I'd like to now look at Titus chapter 2 to look at another aspect of God's powerful grace, teaching grace. Titus 2 verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying godliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, In the King James Version, these four verses are all one sentence. And it talks of the grace of God. What does the grace of God do? I find two things the grace of God does. In verse 11, it brings salvation, which we just talked about. And in verse 12, the grace of God teaches us. And I mentioned previously in John 16, 13, that the Holy Spirit... Uh, talks to us and reveals things to us, guides us in all truth. Grace is the influence of the Holy Spirit that works a change in a person from the inside out. There's a couple of things that grace teaches us here in this passage. We are to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We are surrounded by distractions and worldly things that lure after us 2 Timothy 2.4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So we should not be distracted by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Secondly, God's grace teaches us to live soberly and to not be intoxicated with even good things but not get sidetracked. We are to exercise self-control And to live in moderation. Third thing God's grace teaches us in this passage is to live righteously and godly. The more time we spend in God's word and in that reciprocating cycle of grace and gratitude, the more we will know how to live righteously. His grace will empower us to live above. And lastly, Grace also teaches us in verse 13 that we are to keep our eyes on Jesus and anticipate his second coming. Keep our eyes on the goal. There's so much more that could be said of what all God's grace teaches us. I'd like to again quote Philippians 2.13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. That is grace. Are we reciprocating his, this grace back to God? This brings me to uh, verses that triggered this whole message. I'd like to look at uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10 to 10 for the last part of my message and I've entitled this part, God's Sustaining Grace. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. God's grace is always sufficient for all our needs. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We know this. I don't think there's anyone here that doubts God's providence. He owns a th- cattle on a thousand hills. And yet, we, like Paul, get distracted. If we really want God's sufficient grace in our life that he has promised, then we need to pay attention to what Paul learned here. Verse 7 says, And lest I should be exalted above measure. Exalted. Lest I should be exalted. Pride when we forget who we are in Christ and what God's grace has done in me, when we think I have done something wonderful, when we are no longer reciprocating grace back to God and accrediting the hymn, we must daily crucify self and lay down my my prideful tendencies. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Who, gave himself for, who loved me and gave himself for me. It says here that Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We really don't know exactly what that thorn in the flesh is. I had to think it could have been something like what happened to Job, where Satan went before God and asked to try Job, and he, he uh, inflicted Job with boils. I don't know what it is. But it was a big deal to Paul. It also appears to have been something that helped keep Paul humble. James 4 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. If we are proud, God's grace is not upon us. It, it, pride breaks us out of the reciprocating grace cycle. I don't really think it's all that important exactly what was Paul's thorn in the flesh. I believe the key to God's continuing work of grace is to be totally emptied of self, not me. Not my ideas. God doesn't doesn't need my ideas. God doesn't need my help. He wants my help. He delights when we do his kingdom work, but he doesn't need me. God's grace is made perfect in my weakness. When I am weak, then am I strong. When I realize I can't do this but I trust God for it then he can work miracles and we give him all the credit. Henry Blackaby said human strength is a strong deterrent to trusting in Christ. We must never despise our weakness for it causes us to trust in God. We must never despise our weakness for it causes us to trust in God's strength. When I am weak then am I strong. In closing, I'd like if we could turn our, uh, take our songbooks and turn to number 672. I don't know this song. I'm not going to sing solo. I'm just going to read it. I thought this goes well with what I wanted to share today. Not all songs related to grace exactly say the type of message I had today, but this one I thought came really close. 672. Dear Lord, take up the tangled strands where we have wrought in vain, and by the skill of thy dear hands, some beauty may remain. Transformed by grace divine, the glory shall be thine. To thy most holy will, O Lord, we now our will resign. Touch thou the sad, discordant keys of every troubled breast, and change to peaceful harmonies the sighings of unrest. Transformed by grace divine, the glory shall be thine. To thy most holy will, O Lord, we now are all resign. Where broken vows in, in fragments lie, the, to- the toll of wasted years, do thou make whole again, we cry, and give a song for tears. Transformed by grace divine, the glory shall be thine. To thy most holy will, O Lord, we now are all resign. Take all the failures, each mistake, of our poor human ways. Then, Savior, for thine own dear sake, make them show forth thy praise. Transformed by grace divine, the glory shall be thine. To thy most holy will, O Lord, we now are all resigned. Let's pray. God, we're in awe of your grace that you should choose to come down and work in us and to love us. We have done nothing to deserve this. God, help us to always remember this and that the distractions of this world would not sidetrack us and that we would not become proud or boastful. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Help us, God, to identify with that and to keep praising you and to showing your love to others. We thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Your tr- the truth of your word. I pray for your continued presence here this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.